You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. It is Saturday, November 28th, 2020, and it's finally happened. A story got so out of control that I don't have it ready to tell in time for this, the episode you are currently listening to. Which, as it happens, is also the third anniversary of the show. For three years, I managed to make every deadline. And now, right on the Constance birthday, it's gotten away from me. Don't worry, though. There's a contingency plan. See, I've been meaning to go back and reproduce some of the early episodes of this show that I'm not satisfied with. I find the first two seasons, in particular, to be nigh unlistenable. The mic I was on was hissy, the space I was recording in was too live, and I didn't know anything about either audio production or the voice of this show. So I thought I'd go back and re-record them. Except, it turns out, that all those early scripts were lost on a laptop that conked out a few months ago. Don't worry, though. There's a contingency plan, contingency plan. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every month, I release at least one piece of audio for The Constant's secret feed, available exclusively to those who support the making of the show on Patreon. They just got a new secret episode about Aristotle being ridden around naked like a horse for November. But as both a birthday celebration, a capitalist enticement, and an emergency escape button, I'm giving you three of the older bonus episodes right here today. If you like what you hear, you can head over to patreon.com slash theconstant and sign up to get more. This episode won't be charged on Patreon, which means that for the month of December, you can sign up and get access to the whole feed for the price of just one episode. Maybe you can give it as a Christmas present. I I don't know how that works, but I I bet there's a way. Give it a try. Today's emergency birthday episode, it's a secret to everybody. This first piece dates back to our 50th episode, which was all about gold and the myths that surround it. What I didn't tackle in the main show and left for the secret feed was the history of medicinal gold. And that's act one, all that glitters. This might come off as stoner contrarianism, but I've never totally understood humanity's fascination with gold. I remember a college argument with the theater department's token libertarian, wherein he went on and on about how the dollar was worthless ever since the U.S. Mint gave up the gold standard, and I was absolutely baffled by the thought that the value of gold 
was somehow less imaginary than the value of paper. Like gold had some inherent power virtually unique to itself. But that is how the world sees gold. Why? It's so curious to me. And while I wish I could blame Aristotle for it, and I could, in part, blame Aristotle for it if I rolled my sleeves up, the phenomenon is so much broader than him. It isn't just the Greeks who thought gold was special, or the Jews, or the Christians, or the Huns, the Hindus, the Incas, the Mayans, the Egyptians. It was all of them, and more. It's deeply vexing once you start to break it down. Ah, hell, let's go ahead and go back to Aristotle, because his thoughts on gold as currency are actually pretty smart. When Aristotle wondered about what made good money, he came up with four essential characteristics. It had to be durable, portable, divisible, and rare. The only things he could come up with to meet those criteria were silver and gold, and it's pretty good reasoning. But it doesn't tell us about the intrinsic magic of gold that so many people, including our buddy, believed in. To most of the West and many places beyond, gold represented perfection. It was the perfect substance with a divine balance of the four elements. It was the mother of all metals. And I guess that does make a certain sort of sense. Gold is heavy yet soft. It's tough yet pliable. It doesn't rust or tarnish or age. For hundreds of years, the practice of alchemy ruled the scientific impulses of Europe and Asia. And one day, we will have a big, heaping episode about alchemy. And when that day comes, you'll have a leg up. Because alchemy was preternaturally obsessed with gold. You probably know that. Lead into gold was the ultimate goal of alchemists. The idea there was that lead was the most corrupted and base metal, but it still contained some mix of fire, water, air, and earth. So if you could only balance those out somehow, you could turn the worst into the best. It would be a huge philosophical victory. And, as a small side pot, it'd make you filthy rich. But there was something else that alchemy believed about gold. That it was the panacea, the cure for all illness, and the key to immortality. Oh, this is the constant secret feed, by the way. I'm Mark Chrysler, uh, and today we're talking about the weird history of medicinal gold. So, what should we call this one? How about All That Glitters? Yeah, that's fine. The train of logic is devilishly elegant. Gold is the most perfect material, therefore it should make the most perfect medicine. And the perfect medicine should prevent all harm, including death, in perpetuity. There was just one problem. The very perdurable perfection of gold meant that the mere processes of digestion couldn't touch it. Eat it, it just goes right through you. So this is a paradox, eh? Gold is the perfect medicine because it's insoluble. But because it's insoluble, it can't be medicine. So a global, millennia-spanning search for a way to dissolve gold began. In China, a golden drug of longevity was supposedly concocted way back around 2500 BC. There are references in ancient Egyptian to a gold water that was said to preserve youth. And in traditional Indian medicine, colloidal red gold, tiny golden nanoparticles suspended in water, had been used for various medicinal ends. But it isn't until the 8th century AD that things really take off. 
Jabir Ib Hayyan, one of the great minds of the Islamic Golden Age and one of history's top alchemists, invents aqua regia, a one to three part mixture of hydrochloric and nitric acids that could do the impossible. Dissolve gold. It takes nearly 300 years for Hayyan's discovery to make it to Europe and another couple hundred years for Europeans to grasp the <clears throat> totally bullshit curative possibilities. It's one of our old buddies, Paracelsus, who takes things to the next level. His writings about a panaceic metal water spread far and wide. He calls it orum potable, Latin for drinkable gold. Soon enough, orum potable is flying back and forth all over the continent. The occultist John Hayden writes up a treatise on the subject, probably fraudulently posing as the Renaissance polymath Nicholas Culpepper, who also used orum potable. But the most famous of the recipes comes from the London chemist Francis Anthony. Francis was the child of a prominent goldsmith and worked in Queen Elizabeth's jewel office. He got his Master of Fine Arts in Chemistry from Cambridge in 1574, la-di-da. Sometime around the turn of the century, he began making, prescribing, and selling Orem Potable. He wrote a treatise on its use in 1598, which is probably around the same time he went into the medicine business. But Francis wasn't a physician, and he refused to explain his methods, which led to the College of Physicians censuring him in 1600. In his trial, he said that he had cured at least 20 of various diseases and through various means. The college found his skill and knowledge lacking, and he was fined in order to cease his practice. But Francis Anthony kept going and was eventually jailed, fined, released, only to restart his practice, only to be re-jailed, re-re-released, re-restarted, re-re-jailed, re-re-re-re-released, on and on and on. How Francis Anthony came upon his method of making Orem Potable is unclear. He claimed he didn't get the knowledge through Paracelsus or any of the other alchemists who had come upon Hyen's Aqua Regis. He kept his recipe secret, but several supposed versions of it made their way into the world of letters through the centuries. One of them, almost certainly not the real deal, is deeply focused on the use of human blood. Through Anthony, Paracelsus, and many others, Orem Potable soon became a regular fixture of early Renaissance medicine. And that was a problem. See, gold is insoluble and passes through the body harmlessly. But Orem Potable was not only digested by the body, but toxic to it. The wish for perfect health and immortality had to be measured against the wages of auric fever, a disease caused by drinking too much gold that led to profuse sweating, urinating, salivating, and eventually severe kidney damage. But gold cures pressed on, renal failure or no. In the 16th century, Leonhard Thurinser turned to medicine after a career as a gold forger. He would gild chintzy metal with gold and try to sell it as pure, turned predictably sour. He moved from Munster to Brandenburg and began selling his own Orem Potable, called Magistry of the Sun, which was exposed by a rival professor as total hokum, lacking gold entirely. Magistry of the Sun wasn't just a poetic name. In addition to gold being a perfect metal, it was also considered the metal of the sun, its origin. And the same alchemists who believed that also believed that a person's heart was their own sun. Ergo, even if Orem Potable had proved pretty ineffective and toxic, don't forget toxic, in other matters, it was only natural that some sort of gold solution would be good for the heart. 
Through the 16 and into the 1700s, alcoholic drinks filled with floating gold particulates were sold. They were called cordials or heart warmers. But there was another golden cordial discovered by Sebold Schwarzer in 1585. Schwarzer dissolved gold in aqua regia, added ammonium chloride, precipitated the concoction in a lead sphere, and dried it over oil of tartar. What he was left with was an orange powder, a very different kind of cordial. The product was fulminating gold. And it explodes with barely a touch. By the 1700s, golden medicine was pretty much over, as Enlightenment principles like empiricism challenged the remaining bits of alchemy's legacy. But gold cures weren't done yet. In the 1800s, syphilis began to spread like wildfire, and people, desperate for a cure, were willing to try anything. That included gold, which was sold in pill, powder, and tonic forms, and even as an injectable. Gold didn't cure syphilis, but during the American Civil War, a Union surgeon came up with another use for the fine metal. Alcoholism. Leslie Keeley was born in Potsdam, New York in 1836 and came to Chicago to study at Rush Medical College, graduating in 1863. There was a lot of syphilis among the soldiers, so it's possible that he came across his idea seeing gold treatments during his service. But, well, it's tough to say, because it's hard to know whether Keeley actually ever believed in medicinal gold. What we do know is that in 1880, he opened a sanatorium in Dwight, Illinois, where he made the very novel claim that alcoholism is a disease and that he could cure it using bichloride of gold, a.k.a. or impotable. Keeley's gold cure was a fantastic success. Well, <laughs> depending on how you measure success, that is. Keeley claimed that 95% of those who took the treatment were permanently, completely cured by the end of the month. Third-party observers say it was more like 20% of people who managed to stay sober for the first two months. But in business terms, it was a triumph. At its height, the clinic in Dwight was taking on 700 patients a day, with more than 200 gold cure franchise locations throughout the U.S. and Europe, and a booming prescription business to boot. Each inpatient was put up for a full month. The first day on site, you'd be given eight ounces of whiskey. The next day, it was six, then four, then none. On top of that, there were tonics taken every two hours and injections given four times a day. These tonics and injections supposedly consisted mostly of gold, but that likely wasn't the case. Keeley, like so many of the gold doctors before him, was very secretive and protective about the formula for his cure. There were a handful of times where he allowed small amounts to be analyzed by outsiders, and those did come back showing auric potable. But when people managed to sneak out random samples that weren't provided by Keeley for the express purpose of being analyzed, they showed much different compositions. The potions that people managed to spirit out of the Institute didn't contain any gold at all, but they did contain other things like quinine and atropine, and cannabis, cocaine, heroin, strychnine. Oh, and the most consistent ingredient found in Keeley's alcoholism cure was... Oh, you know, you know what I'm going to say. Come on, let's do it together. Three, two, one, alcohol. After Keeley's death in 1900, the gold cure business began to fall apart, in part because the Institute lost its greatest advocate and one of the few people who properly knew what was supposed to be in the treatment, but also because Fred Hargraves, 
one of Keeley's earliest partners, came forward to say that there was no gold in the gold cure. He said that in the first days, Keeley believed gold would cure alcoholism, and so he and Hargraves had tried out the golden cure on a patient, who promptly died from it. After that, the gold was dropped from the product, but not from the advertising. The gold cure made for real good advertising, after all. The first and final Keeley Institute in Dwight, Illinois, outlasted the man himself, continuing his treatment until it finally closed its doors in 1966. As is so often the case with quacks, it's tough to say what Keeley actually believed. He likely didn't think gold was a real cure, but it doesn't necessarily follow from there that he thought the cure he was actually selling was bunko. What's most fascinating, though, is whether or not he believed his initial premise. At the time that Keeley began selling his treatment, the world understood drunkenness to be a character flaw, the result of gluttony or shiftlessness. Keeley was one of the first people to call alcoholism an addiction, beyond the individual agency of its sufferers. Was that a true observation, an honest belief he had? Or was this critically important medical observation first proffered as a flim-flam? Was the whole of our understanding of addiction medicine begun because of a con man so gifted that he accidentally got one thing right? Two more Secret Feed episodes for you right after this. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp is here for you. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment, all in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help, it's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll receive timely, thoughtful responses. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, too, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp is available worldwide, with a broad range of expertise which may not be available locally, like relationships, trauma, grief, or stress. And anything you share is confidential. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recording additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Having your voice be heard is more important now than ever. And that's why, even though the election is done, the fight for voting rights marches on. Your voice matters, my voice matters, and every eligible voter has a right to make their voice matter. Voting should be free, fair, and safe. I cast my vote last month, and I hope you did too. More than 160 million projected voters cast their ballot this year, shattering records. We want to know what motivated you to participate in an election that will help us deliver a democracy where we can all thrive. We've heard from first-time voters, those who stood in line for hours, and those who were moved to tears knowing how important their vote was. If you or someone you know had trouble voting, or if there's any other experience you'd like to share, let your story be heard now. Visit andstillivote.org slash yourstorymatters. That's your hyphen story hyphen matters to join the fight for voting rights today. Paid for by the Leadership Conference Education Fund. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Usually stories that work their way into the secret feed are extensions of or digressions from the stuff that's going on in the constant proper. There are several fool killer tangents, a whole bunch of happy accident supplements, stuff like that. Other times, it's a place for me to put stories that don't quite fit the theme of the show. This piece is one of my favorite stories, which I wrote for Curious Theater Branch and the Rhinoceros Theater Festival back when there was theater and even festivals of it. Act 2, The Rest is Silence. The Rest is Silence. These are the last words spoken by Hamlet before he dies. Sometimes. Other times, he is given four more, and they go like this. O, 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 O. Which, frankly, is a little contradictory. The rest is silence. But for this series of groans. And so, usually, they are omitted. But there they are, the four O's, in the text of the first folio. Hibbard's Oxford edition translates the four O's into one long groan. Hibbard justifies this elision pretty convincingly. He notes that when Lady M lets out a series of three O's, the doctor responds, what a sigh is there. And when Othello has his three O's, Amelia describes them as a roar. However, I like to believe that Shakespeare did not write Hamlet's O's at all, that instead, they were added, extemporaneously or otherwise, by the first actor to carry the role, and that this little bit of embellishment made it into the printed text almost by accident. In Act 3, Hamlet himself scolds the players in the play within the play not to improvise or make funny faces. And then, the same actor, two acts later, did exactly that. His name was Richard Burbage, and he originated most of Shakespeare's most famous characters, Lear, Othello, Mercutio, Richard III, and, of course, Hamlet. Why would Burbage have added the four O's? The most obvious answer is that Burbage was chewing scenery, that he was given this gigantic, totemic, brilliant role, the Prince of Denmark, with at least one of the greatest soliloquies ever written, and then, for his grand death, he was provided only the rest is silence. What a jip! So Burbage hammed it up, gave himself a big dramatic moment. Oh, 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 oh. Possible. But what happens if we give Burbage some credit as not only a great actor, but as a great friend to the author? Of all the surrogates Shakespeare wrote for himself, there is none like Hamlet. Shakespeare never got the education Hamlet did, never got to go to Wittenberg and study behind the doors where Luther nailed his theses, but the world of Wittenberg, the world of doubt and deliberation, lived inside of Shakespeare as strongly as it did in Hamlet. Hamlet, who spends five acts pacing back and forth and arguing with himself about the moral course, the meaning of life, and particularly the nature of death and legacy. 
Hamlet, who is paralyzed by thought, gripped by consideration like a parody of his author, who made a living writing contemplative asides in the midst of titanic struggles. In his 1594 poem, The Rape of Lucretia, Shakespeare again demonstrates the problem. Lucretia cannot write her husband, cannot put down what has happened, not because of her shame or emotional distress, but because she has too many thoughts and can't pluck out one of them to start with. Much like a press of people at a door, throng her inventions, which shall go before. That is the mind of Shakespeare, and that is the mind of Hamlet, a press of people at a door. And on no subjects did that press run as thick or deep as it did around death and legacy. Knowing Shakespeare's obsession with the undiscovered country and how he laid that obsession in the character of Hamlet, perhaps Burbage added the O's, four of them, because in that last moment, after the silence, the two of them finally knew the answers. The rest is silence. Oh. 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 Burbage originated the role, but the greatest Hamlet of all time is generally considered to be an American actor in the 19th century, Edwin Thomas Booth. Edwin was one of three illegitimate sons to Junius Brutus Booth, and the only one who got to tread the boards with his famous father, playing trestle against his dad's Richard III. When Junius fell ill, Edwin stepped up into the part of the hunchback. That was all fine and good, but it was as Hamlet that Edwin would make his nut. In 1864, Edwin began an incredible run. For 100 straight nights in New York City, he took the stage as the Prince of Denmark. 100 nights in a row, ending with The Rest is Silence. It was a record, a claim to fame. The name Booth would forever be associated with the Hundred Nights Hamlet. If not for Edwin's brother, of course, who you already know or have probably guessed was named John Wilkes. Edwin and John had a contentious relationship. They performed on stage together only one time along with their other brother, Junius Jr., in a benefit performance of Julius Caesar, the proceeds from which were used to buy the statue of the Bard, which even today stands in Central Park. Junius played Cassius, John was Mark Antony. Edwin embodied Brutus, whose line, Six Semper Tyrannus, would be stolen by John Wilkes at the Ford Theater on April 15, 1865. By then, Edwin and John were virtually estranged. Edwin was a staunch abolitionist and supporter of the Union, while John Wilkes was, to put it mildly, not. Still, after the assassination, Edwin's name was so toxic and his mind so racked that he had to step down from the stage. When he came back to the theater in January of 1866, it was again as Hamlet. But this time, he was different. Until that moment, acting, particularly Shakespearean acting, was a big theatrical affair. Huge gestures, booming intonements, capital A, acting. But those at the Winter Garden Theater that January saw something totally different. Edwin Booth walked out onto the stage with the size and gait of a human being. He spoke the words quietly, like a person would speak them. It was breathtaking. Imagine 
being among the first people to ever hear the words, to be or not to be, that is the question, said as if they were, in fact, a question. And how Edwin had reason to ask. Two wives buried. A brother whose name he forbid ever being spoken. Yet, a brother whose body he petitioned to have quietly given over to him. A brother he had buried in the family plot, but without a grave, a stone, or marker. Forever entombed with the famous family, yet purposely forgotten. The rest is silence. Edwin advocated for the return of the original text, the first folio, in performance, which means, in all probability, that he gave the O's. What did it sound like to hear the specter of death voiced by a man uninterested in bombastic performance? A man who was coming to know the mysteries of legacy that Hamlet, and perhaps even Shakespeare himself, had only been able to wrestle with. A man whose treasonous brother had taken up arms against the savior of the Republic, the great emancipator, the pride and joy of Illinois, and by opposing, ended him. The rest is silence. Oh. 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 In 1891, Edwin had to stop acting after suffering a stroke from which he never recovered. His last role was, naturally, that of Hamlet. And the last words he ever said on stage were, The rest is silence. Oh. 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 In April of 1893, he had another stroke, and then a third on June 7th, which killed him. In his pocket was discovered a letter that he kept near him the whole of his life. Not from his brother, not from his father, not a review, not even a page from the folio, not even the edition of Richard Burbage's Four O's. It was, instead, a letter of thanks. In 1864, just after the Hundred Nights Hamlet and just before his brother drew his gun on the president, Edwin Booth was standing on a crowded train platform in Jersey City, New Jersey when a young man fell onto the tracks in front of one of the giant steam engines. Edwin hit the deck, reached down, and lifted him up by the collar to safety. The young man instantly recognized his rescuer, but the reverse wasn't true. It was months later, after his brother's terrible deed, and before Edwin returned to the stage, that he was handed the letter by a mutual acquaintance, Colonel Adam Badeau. He told a friend that it was that letter which had delivered him from madness in the time after his brother's foul legacy. The thing that kept him going all those years in the face of such suffering and confusion. It was in that letter, which he kept on his person from there on until the moment he died in the player's clubhouse, that Edwin learned the identity of the man he had saved that day in Jersey City. Robert Todd Lincoln the president's eldest son. The rest is silence. Oh. 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 Oh.
enjoy bizarre true stories, then the Useless Information Podcast is the podcast for you. For example, did you know that author Robert Louis Stevenson gave his birthday away? Or that there was a football team that played for six years before someone realized that the school never, ever existed? Or that a dog in upstate New York was once placed on trial for murder? Well, to hear these and hundreds of additional fascinating true stories from the flip side history, be sure to check out the Useless Information Podcast. That's the Useless Information Podcast, podcasting worldwide since 2008 and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to check it out. One last story. We don't have a Christmas episode on the schedule this year, which is a tad disappointing. So for this final piece, here's last year's Christmas bonus episode to get you through the season. Act 3, Captain Santa. To understand Chicago, you have to understand the lake. If you've never been here, if you've only ever seen them on maps or heard the term Great Lakes, then you probably don't get it. And that's not your fault. It's the word lake. It's deceptive. Everybody's seen a lake before, so Lake Michigan must be like that, but bigger. Lake Michigan is not like that, but bigger. It's deceptive even in person. Sometimes I'll look out from a beach over the horizon and think, I wonder if I could swim to the other side. But the other side is a hundred miles away. I have to remind myself that Lake Michigan is the size of the English Channel. It's not a lake, but bigger. It's a freshwater sea. The lake is big enough to have islands, and those islands are big enough to have lakes of their own, meta-lakes. It's big enough to have a tide, though not much of one. It's big enough to sustain great tankers and cargo ships today, and big enough to have floated great sailing ships in the past. At the height of the age of lake sailing, in 1868, there were 1,800 large ships on the water. Lake Michigan was big enough to contain them all, and big enough to sink them, too. From the mid-19th century until the second decade of the 20th, most of the great ships of the Great Lakes were in the timber business. The great deciduous forests of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan's Lower Peninsula were worth a fortune. The Great Lakes lumber business was so big that it became home to pirates and poachers. The lakes so big that they played host to naval battles. But that's a story for another time. The schooners of Lake Michigan would sail from points north with mighty hauls of lumber making their way south to Chicago, where the city was booming in constant need of building materials. And the wood could be shipped down the Chicago River, the Calumet River, up the Fox to the Mississippi, oak and maple and cherry. But the most valuable forests of all were the ones way up north, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where conifers and pines ruled. By the turn of the century, steamships and trains began taking over the lumber business in Wisconsin and the Lower Peninsula. But there was still one trade where the schooners reigned supreme. Christmas trees. Every November, dozens of ships would load up with evergreens at the top of the lake, then make the week-long voyage down to Chicago, where they'd line the docks along the mouth of the river, a long line of tall masts and rigging strung with lights and topped with Christmas trees, each one selling trees, wreaths, garlands, and ornaments, like a floating Santa's village. The other thing to understand about Lake Michigan is its other deception. On a clear day, 
the water can be as still as a bathtub. And at those times, it's difficult to imagine it as anything other than beatific and welcoming. But give it an hour, and the waves can kick up, enormous and fast and darkly inhospitable. When Lake Michigan is angry, it's as dangerous as the open Atlantic. And it's never so angry as during the gales of November. Herman Schunemann knew the risks of running the gales as well as anybody. On November 9th, 1898, his brother August had died aboard the SS Tal when it sunk on its way to Chicago, carrying a load of Christmas trees. But that didn't stop Herman from continuing in the business. Schunemann was born in 1865, had moved from Wisconsin to Chicago with his family in 1890, and had married his wife Barbara in 1892. Together, they had three daughters, including Hazel and Pearl, twins born just days before their uncle sank beneath the lake. By 1912, Herman was one of the most seasoned captains on the Great Lakes. He'd been making November Christmas tree runs for more than 20 years, and his ship, the Roos Simmons, was the last schooner still setting up its lights on the river docks where Barbara and the girls would tie wreaths and string garlands for the thousands of people who came down to the river mouth to see the Christmas schooner and to buy a tree from it. The other Christmas ships had by then moved on to selling to retailers and grocers, wholesaling their wares off to third-party operations. But Herman still did things the old way, selling the trees himself for cheap off the docks of the Rue Simmons just before the Clark Street Bridge. It's as romantic as Christmas could be. The people of Chicago would mark the beginning of the holiday season by when they saw the great three-masted ship, decked in lights and topped with a tree, pulling tall and proudly into the docks. The fame didn't make Herman rich. In fact, he was heavily in debt thanks to a saloon he'd bought, which had failed a few years before. But that didn't stop him from selling his Christmas trees, the finest in the city, for just a dollar each, and giving them away for the families who couldn't afford that. He became known to the city of Chicago as Captain Santa, a nickname he was so proud to have that when it made the papers, he cut out the clipping and stored it delicately within his wallet for the rest of his life. That wasn't to be very long. Herman Schunemann left port at Thompson, Michigan on November 22, 1912, aboard the Roos Simmons, which was packed with some 5,000 Christmas trees, filling out every deck and corner and hold. The people who saw it off said it was like watching a floating forest depart. The trip was meant to take a week. The Rue Simmons would make Chicago in time to announce that Christmas had arrived, just around December 1st. But December 1st came and went, and then the 2nd, and the 3rd, and the 4th. By then, it was terribly clear. Christmas wouldn't be coming to Chicago, after all. On November 23rd, the gales of November had arrived with a fierceness, taking four ships down. The South Shore, the Three Sisters, the Two Brothers, and the Ruth Simmons. At 2.50 p.m., the station master at Kewanee, Wisconsin, sighted a three-masted schooner in the storm, flying its flag at half-mast, signaling distress. But the station's tugboat was out of harbor, and soon the schooner disappeared from sight. The station master phoned his counterpart at Two Rivers, just to his south, who sent out their gas-powered boat to search for the ship. But they found nothing. 
that Ruth Simmons was gone, sunk with all hands. For weeks and months, stray Christmas trees washed up on beaches from northern Wisconsin down to Door County. In Sheboygan, a letter in a bottle came ashore, reading, Friday, everybody goodbye. I guess we are all through. During the night, the small boat washed overboard, leaking bad. Invald and Steve lost too. God help us. It was corked with a cut of Christmas tree. Fourteen years later, in 1924, a fishing boat found in its net an oilskin wallet, within which was a news clipping about Herman Schunemann, calling him Captain Santa. Barbara and the girls kept the family business alive into the 30s, though the sinking of the Rue Simmons was pretty well the end of transporting Christmas trees by sail. By 1920, it was all trains. They set up a storefront on the near north side called Captain and Mrs. Schunemann's Daughters, where people came to buy trees and wreaths and to talk about their memories of the ship that used to mark the beginning of Christmas and the man who had been so kind to the needy, Captain Santa. The wreck of the Rue Simmons was discovered in 1971, laying flat on the bottom in 172 feet of water. More than 50 years after it went down, the Christmas trees it carried were still there, needles and all. The Rue Simmons and its captain were never forgotten. Like any good Christmas story, this one's got ghosts. Sailors on Lake Michigan claim to have seen the spectral decks of the Christmas schooner riding the gales of November forever. Less of spirits and more in the spirit is the Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac, which every year since 2000 has brought a shipment of Christmas trees from the Upper Peninsula to Chicago's Navy Pier, where they're distributed to needy families throughout the city. On its way, the Mackinac stops above the final resting place of the Rue Simmons and lays a wreath upon the water, like the ones his wife and daughters used to make there under the glowing lighted masts docked on the river near the Clark Street Bridge, where Captain Santa used to bring Christmas to Chicago. Thank you all for your indulgence this week. We'll be back in two with a story I'm very excited to devote the additional time to. Music by Lee Rosevere, Kevin McLeod, and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like these little stories... You'll definitely enjoy the other Secret Feed episodes. If you can afford it, and only if you can afford it, head on over to patreon.com slash theconstant and sign up to support the show to get access to all of them. We've got more merch up, including the fucking Aristotle designs you're clamoring for. Go to constantpodcast.com and navigate over to the shop tab to take a look or check the link in the episode notes. We are a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to iconography, which just began a new holiday tradition, looking back at the history of the first Thanksgiving. If you haven't heard it before, you can now, and if you have before, you can listen again. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where it has been a long couple of weeks, this has been The Constant. <laughs>